This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. For more than 40 years, Helix Education's enrollment growth solutions, including outsourced program management, enrollment marketing, and retention services, have helped colleges and universities successfully find, enroll, retain, teach, and graduate post-traditional learners. To learn more about how data can drive your institution's enrollment growth, visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. Hello and welcome to the latest Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. It is a Friday afternoon here in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm Kevin Carey from New America, and I am joined by my co-podcasters, Libby Nelson from Vox.com and Andrew Kelly from the American Enterprise Institute. Hey, guys. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Libby, what are we drinking? Uh, we are drinking Manhattans in honor of the uh, continued dominance of Donald Trump. The inevitable Ooh. ascendancy. Manhattan value. There we go. I was at a dinner with they, a woman from Kansas State, so also it could be an honor of Ooh, okay, I made this right. They I have like, what has been described as a very rye-ish bourbon in them. I like okay. mine. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So last last week, two weeks ago, not that long ago, particularly in the grand <laughs> higher ed happy hour podcast scheme of things, just yesterday, um, we finished our discussion talking about the uh, Jeb Bush higher education plan that... Andrew, you've uh, written about and I know played an informal advising role in helping develop. Um, earlier this week, uh, New America, uh, where I work, came out with uh, a new report called Starting from Scratch, a new federal and state partnership in higher education, um, which I think is now is a another entrance into the um, growing number of large and ambitious calls to change the way that we finance American higher education. So um, we're going to talk about that and maybe also get back to the Jeb Bush plan since we didn't have, I think, a lot of time to talk about it last time. We got a few requests on Twitter to, to discuss the two. Um, and I'm going to kind of kick it over to Libby to uh, moderate or guide the discussion and also keep us on time today because I'm terrible at that. So I have to keep us on time and I have to keep you two from tearing each other's throats okay. out. So this will go great. Um, so, Kevin, since it, this is your baby, uh, give us the 30-second summary of what you want to do to federal financial aid. Absolutely. Um, get rid of all of it and replace it with something else entirely. So our proposal is to eliminate the Pell Grant program, um, eliminate all higher education tax credits, along with a few other minor programs, um, eliminate the entire federal student loan program. Basically, the everything Title IV has been about since the uh, late 60s and early 70s. Um, take all of the money that we're spending on all those things, which is substantial, and turn it, add a bunch of money to it um, and turn that into a new federal program of direct distributions to states, which would then turn around um, and give the money directly to colleges and universities, but uh, only if colleges and universities meet uh, certain eligibility criteria. So one, they would have to enroll at least 25% uh, low-income students as low-income is currently defined by the Pell Grant program. Second, they could only charge any of their students, not just low-income students, any of their students, they could charge them no more than the expected family contribution um, as defined in federal law. And three, the colleges would have to be subject to what we describe pretty broadly um, as some kind of baseline accountability regime for retention, graduation, and earnings um, after completion of college. Um, that's the proposal in a nutshell. Um, public with, and private colleges, public, correct? Uh, public, private, and for-profit colleges are all eligible um, for this money. It would be at the discretion of states to decide which institutions are eligible. But um, because the amount of money that a state would get is a function of how many students you enroll in eligible institutions, how many low-income students you enroll in eligible institutions, um, we think that states would have an incentive to uh, bring as many different kinds of institutions as possible into the 
into the mix because that would mean more students. Um, but they would also have to provide enough money to the, to the institution serving those students to A, keep prices down, and B, make sure that the accountability, accountability outcomes are good. So we, really, we see this as a way of tackling what, I guess, from our perspective, are two of the, the biggest, if not the biggest problems kind of uh, bedeviling American higher education right now. First of all, the continued uh, state disinvestment. Uh, because in order to participate in this program, states would also have to match 25% uh, of the money that was coming in from the federal government. If they enroll more than um, the minimum number of uh, low-income students, they would, or, or I should say, if states spend more than the match, um, they would get a bonus of 50% of each dollar beyond that. Um, and institutions that enroll more than 25% low-income students would also get um, a bonus out of the essentially money remaining in the pool of money. But states would be competing, and so states that do a good job of supporting their institutions and making sure that a lot of institutions are both enrolling low-income students and giving them, uh, not charging them too much money, would get more of the money. Um, those that, that, that do less of that would get less. That's the plan. All right. All right. That's, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot there. Oh, it would also cost $38 billion a year uh, above and beyond what the federal government spends on higher education now. Uh, which is a lot of money. Um, and 18 billion on the part of the states. And 18 billion on the part of the states, yep. um, which is a lot of money, um, although uh, less than, I think, either the Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders uh, higher education plans. Mm -hmm. Or it's, a, it's a, maybe about the it's same more as the than Hillary's. plan, less than the Sanders plan. Yeah, it's a little more than Hillary's because uh, I don't know. Well, actually, I don't know that hers counts the state money that it would entail. So it's probably maybe about that the seems, same. Yeah, it, they all seem to be. I tell, to be honest, yeah. I have not reviewed the numbers from any of the plans in a while. So you're on the fiscally responsible side of the bat. <laughs> crazy spending plans. Yes, we are. Yeah, it's all it's all context. The overture window. I censored. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, I censored. So yeah, so we feel like, I mean, a couple of points I made, if I've, a couple of my talking points that I've been trying to make this this, uh, this week. First of all, there are huge incentives for states to disinvest right now. Um, they can do it with uh, semi-impunity because implicitly the money, the their disinvestment is backfilled by either Pell Grant or mostly loan dollars. Um and it's continuing to happen. Uh, actually, Alexander Holt, who a colleague of mine uh, at New America, is has spent this whole week down in Louisiana watching the um, major, major budget crisis unfolding in Baton Rouge right now that includes the president of the LSU system saying, and this is probably what will end up <laughs> ending the fiscal crisis, if you take all our money away, we'll shut down the colleges. If we shut down the colleges, the football players can't play football next fall. Um, and people are like, oh, well, in that case... <laughs> We better not shut down the colleges. But, you know, this is eight years into a recovery, right? And I mean, if you were to put $100 on the table right now and say, are we closer to the last recession or are we closer to the next recession? I'm betting closer to the next recession. And I think any most people would bet that. So um, if we don't do anything between now and the inevitable next recession, everything is going to be much, much worse. Um, whatever fact got pulled out of the, the universities last time, it's going to be terrible for colleges and universities. Second of all, um, this is a way for to try to tackle the problem of increasing student loan debt. Um, and on some basic level, there are a lot of things that you can do. And this is a lot of what I think is in the, the um, Clinton and Sanders plan. There are things that you can do to make it easier for people to pay their loans back. But fundamentally, we don't think that subsidizing loans is a very good way of making college affordable. Um, and if we don't want student loan debt to keep getting bigger and bigger, we're going to have to find a way to stop lending people so much money. Um, and we think that, we think that this would do that. So, do you want to you give your you can go for you want to give your explainer? No, do you want to no, give your explainer I'm, position first? No, I mean I have more questions still, but I think 
I've been thinking a lot, and I think I talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, about sort of path dependency in the current system. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested, um, which I think is is much greater than a lot of people assume it is. And I'm, I'm intrigued that you have sort of gone the other way. So mm-hmm. from like the last big overhauling financial aid where the, the RAD papers in 2013 through now, apparently, apparently they're still going on, um, which was reimagining aid design and delivery from the Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. And yours, you guys as then, as I recall, was like very technocratic and very like... Here are like sixteen different things, all right. of, all of which could be taken all apart, and which could also be taken together. Yeah, and I'm curious about the philosophical shift that sort of occurred between then and now. Me, sure, me too. Exactly this point, um, and especially because for context, state appropriations since 2013 have actually come back somewhat. Somewhat, yeah. I mean, right? they've been so, they have so what, somewhat. So so what what went from it being a system that we could fix with 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 common sense, reasonable reforms in your rad paper? To a system that I think is dis- described in various points in here as irreparably broken, yes, and un- completely untenable, right? Uh, I think is the yes. other one. Yeah. So, um, what's the explanation? Well, so I think it's a good point. None of the uh, reforms in this paper can really be taken a la carte. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, um, if you get rid of the federal student loan system, then the people who still have to borrow money for college, and there would be some, but not nearly as many, will have to go into the private student loan market, and we say very explicitly. Uh, don't do that unless you also make loans dischargeable in bankruptcy and other reforms to the private student loan market. And we talk about what those reforms are. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think that time has gone by since then. I, I, admit, I think all of the proposals in the RAD, RAD report are good. And as we say in the paper, there are all kinds of ways that, since we don't think that Congress is going to pass this plan tomorrow, um, there are lots of things that we think can and should be done within the context of the current system to to improve it. And we're, we're going to continue to work on that. And a lot of those things are represented in that RAD report. But um, we feel like if you don't change the sort of underlying dynamics of a huge federal higher education subsidy system that is not in really um, – tied to any sense of strong purpose and doesn't hold states or institutions accountable in any meaningful way for the quality of the education they provide, their commitment to low-income students, or how much they charge them, things are going to keep getting worse. So I suppose, you know, our sense of urgency has increased and thus our sense of the size of the solutions has as well. Hmm. So one question I have right off the Right off the bat. And, and like, so first, let me applaud you guys for taking on like a big idea. And I enjoyed reading it. And I didn't read it thinking I wasn't reading it saying like, no, 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 this is so dumb. I read it thinking like, oh, this is an interesting uh, approach. Like, I don't I don't I think there's big flaws in its understanding of um, of the of the way public budgets will work in the future in particular. Um, and so one of the things I'd like to which I, which I think is an interesting case study to consider, um, and it, it'll bring bring in some of the details. Is what happens in the next recession under your plan? Mm-hmm. So like so like and let, and let's just like think about it. So recession, tax revenues go down, enrollments, higher enrollments go way up. States now, states who participate in this plan now have to pony up the twenty five percent right for every one of those enrollments of the federal money. They don't have the money. To pony it up, right? To continue to make that investment, so the or or the, maybe they do, or you know, you can't raise taxes because that's going to hurt hurt any economic recovery. So my my worry about this is the same worry that I have with the free college plans um, is that 
this is going to potentially lead to shortages. Um, when the money, when the public money runs thin, and you guys are still charging EFC, so there's some like way mm-hmm. to raise revenue, right? You could raise revenue on volume, maybe, right? If you're a college or something, but um, and and just to follow to run the string through, right? My sense of what was likely to happen is that if a state were to stop kicking in the 25% match, the feds wouldn't just say, sorry, you're no longer getting any federal aid. They would never do that, right? They would likely say, well, let's backstop you because we can borrow, right? And then my sense is that what would happen from then on is like the credible commitment to like holding people to the standard disappears, so there's always a plausible scenario of kind of politics and backsliding. Um, and that's true for any kind of state-federal relationship. So I think the question is, what's the policy architecture that puts you in the strongest position to get to the, in the, to the best place when you have to go through those kind of negotiations? And I would argue it's certainly not what we have now. Where I mean, there are like, sure. in theory maintenance of effort provisions, they're a joke, they don't really mean anything. Um, if the recession is large enough, then absolutely, the federal government can uh, borrow lots of money in order to shore up higher education spending, which is exactly what it did the last time. And so, and so, my, right, so, and so the question then is, so under your system, though, because, sorry, under your system, because there's this architecture, mm-hmm. right, the federal government would then withdraw, and the states would then fill back in. I don't know, After you, a recession, what do you mean by withdrawing? I, I, I actually don't so understand. let's say, so, so let's say the state again. So the states stop covering the twenty five percent match. Okay, right, and twenty five percent match is crucial to making the EFC math work, right? right. To yes. like, so let's say they stop because they have to because they have to pay for Medicaid. Well, no, they don't. They, they don't have to, but okay. I mean, they want to. Well, they have to balance their budget, right? right. Okay, and if Which they're in, if they're in a deep recession like the last one, or even not so deep recession, mm-hmm. they may have an inability to kick in the twenty five percent. If they fail to kick in the twenty five percent, somebody's going to have to, or they're going to be kicked out of the program. Right. Which, like for me, I'd be like, well, look, you signed on to the deal. If you're not going to spend it, you should be kicked out. We know that's not going to happen. Right. So you could right? dial it back to like twenty two percent, and that could be part of your stimulus package. But like, yeah, but do you see like the dialing, right? Like for me, like how does the dial get reset? Well, so like right now, what happens? And just to follow up, like the, right. that's the, that's why we have the problem we have now, right? Is because the feds inc- incrementally increased as the states withdrew. The feds incrementally increased money going to students, right? And I see how the, there's some difference by giving mm-hmm. it directly to the states or the institutions, but I'm not sure it's as big a difference as you guys think it is. I mean, this this isn't going to solve the larger problem of. Uh, pro-cyclical state disinvestment during recessions because states have to balance their budgets and can't borrow money. Yep. That's a big, that's a larger problem than this, than this paper can solve. Um, uh, I don't, I'm, I feel like this wouldn't make this, that problem any worse and would actually define the terms a little more explicitly. So we would, we could, we could make some straightforward choices about maybe the match should only be 22% um, or should only be 21% or we'll kind of change the ratio to get through the recession because the federal government is in a much better position to engage in counter-cyclical borrowing spending as was proven by the Obama administration's very successful program um, that that was primarily focused, substantially um, all about subsidizing state education at the higher education and the uh, the K-12 level. So, so, I mean, you're right. Partly it happened kind of automatically last time. Pell Grant went up. We, if we backfilled the Pell Grant. We filled the Pell Grant quote shortfall, unquote, because we always do that. Um, we basically allowed the Pell Grant pro- program to function like an entitlement. But we also just lent a lot of money. 
right? And people are still paying or not paying not paying those loans back today. But yeah, but the but the difference is that schools had the ability. So the feds didn't make up all the difference, right? Feds didn't have to make up all mm. the difference because schools could charge and students right. could borrow. And so that's the that's where the shortages come in, right? It's like, yes, you're right. The feds could like ra- maybe ratchet back the match and mm-hmm. make up for it. But but you know, state uh, state they state feds can't didn't cover the whole piece la- the whole uh the size of the disinvestment last time they didn't have to and that's part of part of what made the system able to respond in some sense and they did respond they enrolled students they didn't respond perfectly a lot of students were turned away but mike this is my concern is the comp- you're right it won't change the problem of counter cyclical recession um like re- the the sort of mm-hmm. counter cyclical enrollments versus state spending but that to me is a big reason why why the ability to charge tuition and the ability for, of students to borrow is important. Do you see what I mean? Because those are facts of economic life. Well, like right now, state higher education is at a singular disadvantage relative to all other ma- major state functions, precisely for the reasons that you just described. I mean, this this is on a long-term basis, going back at least to the 1980s, a significant cause of the long-term increase, particularly in public higher education prices, because you have this ratchet effect where every time there's a recession, Colleges and universities disproportionately feel the effect because K-12 schools can't charge. You can't put tolls up on all the highways. I mean, you could, but you're not going to do that. Uh, You can't charge the prisoners for prison. Um, Medicaid, very significantly, you have less discretion to cut spending and start charging people. Well, Um, You have a lot lot of incentive to raise Medicaid spending as a state because you get – because the feds actually – so you have a lot of – sorry, you don't have – not as much to raise the spending, but to increase eligibility and who's eligible because the feds cover a lot of that. Tab, sure. Yeah, right? that's right. So yeah. so if you're sort of a state administrator, you're like, yeah, why not? Like feds are going to pour in a bunch of money to that, cover all these. That doesn't feel like a bad thing to me. More people on Medicaid. Well, maybe. But when, right. the, when, the ta- when taxpayers look at the cost of Medicaid, it is a bad thing, right? I guess I think this would put higher education on more of a level playing field in the next recession. So it would be it wouldn't be the obvious place to just yeah, just cut raise tuition man you know people will pay for it that's the lesson we've learned the last five times around yeah i mean that, that i think that's fair I, I just i still worry about i still worry about the fact that you're gonna wind up in a, you're gonna wind up in a place where where a lot of the sort of price control plans wind and i'm, and I'm not saying that to be pejorative like that, that's just where they are right you're controlling price at efc um the that the problem there is that that you're making the institutions more dependent um, in, entirely on what the public's willing to spend, and if the public doesn't want to spend at at a pace that keeps pace with enrollments, forget a recession, right? Even if you just had like a big glut of new high school graduates, if it does, if this, if this, if public says, "Hey, we don't want you to spend the tw- we don't want you to put in the twenty five percent match anymore," because it's gotten way too expensive, and not to mention the fact that the, that your plan calls for letting anybody from out of state only pay EFC, right? Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I Sorry, was, and I'm, was, yeah, I was I'm monopolizing, but that. I no. do want to talk about that because because that yeah. to me is like I can I can see a state being like, what do you what do you mean if I participate in this, I've got to take not only my own residents, right, but I've got to pay the cost, right? Of because the this others. is good. This also the plan also um, essentially ends the out of state arms race that we're in right now, where essentially the system we have right now, um, the strong incentive is for all public institutions to only enroll students from other states. That's where they all want to go, right? They all just want to increase because they can pay. They can pay within whatever the the boundaries of the political economy of their state. I mean, you see this in like lots of places, right? Like where uh, 
a lot of a lot of places need the out-of-state students to fill the seats. They don't have enough kids, right? In states with declining populations, right? right? I mean, so it's not the case Some, that like it's but not the I case mean, that out-of-state students are always crowding out in-state students. Yeah, I'm skeptical of this as a major problem outside of the like ten or fifteen super prestigious flagships that also. For example, don't enroll enough Paul students to even be eligible for the first round of this right. in under current circumstances. Which is a good thing from my perspective. They can either enroll more Paul students or pay for them themselves. So right, I, but I'm just saying yeah, those, yeah. I, that's a yeah. pretty small, I mean, that, yeah. that's a pretty small fraction of what we talk about even when we talk about public higher yeah. education. I mean, if you, if the, the out-of-state. I don't, system, I don't quite, I right. guess what I'm saying is I don't quite see the out-of-state arms race as a problem that needs solving on par with like student debt or sure. some of these other issues that you're it's looking at It's the sixth or seventh best reason to implement the New America Plan. That, um, I, will, that I will concede. I can I can, I can can uh, pause and, and let Libby jump in with her questions because I feel like yeah. I've monopolized. But, no, go um, ahead. That to me is the bit, that to me is one of the, is just a big structural thing. And I don't think, I said, I was talking with one of your colleagues yesterday um, and I was saying like, let, let me be absolutely clear that I think that life is a life is a an exer- and politics and policies and exercise in managing the trade offs. And you guys have clearly said we want to manage the trade offs in this way. And I respect that. Right. Um, the one trade off you didn't acknowledge in the piece though was this one, which was what happens when enrollments outpace public spending. Right at either, at either the federal or the state level. Does this make that problem worse? I mean, I mean, isn't that just a, a yeah, problem? Yes, yes, because yes, because if you can borrow, if you have access to to capital, people to borrow, can still borrow. They can't. I mean, ninety ninety five percent of private student loans are cosigned, and if you, right now, and if you put, and if you if you make them dischargeable in bankruptcy, that'll go to ninety nine percent. And, I mean, I, and I'm a big believer right. in the private sector. Right. Trust me. But like, we're writing a paper on this right now, which says a lot of the arguments about how. If we just got rid of all these programs, the private sector would come in and lend to people. Right, aren't really aren't really. Accurate. I would think that's especially true for the countercyclical enrollment mm-hmm. population. So I want to. So one thing I, I didn't say explicitly. So right. So uh, this also takes all grad stu- graduate students out of the student um, the the loan system. <laughs> that so. we can applaud. <laughs> that that I was applauding. Since all since all you don't highlight that enough. All DC a, policy wants <laughs> hate graduate students. It's well, it's well known. It should be a poll. Um, but it, I mean, at some level, you kind of have to ask yourself if we're meeting EFC for everybody, if you're, if you're a school and, and everyone is meeting EFC and so the only people who have to borrow are the ones who have to pay more than that, which puts them in a different in- income category. So they're making more money and no one in the private market wants to lend those students money to come to your school. What does that say about your school? So there are strong assumptions of changes in institutional behavior that we are going to that this is going to create a something of a consciousness shift where people are going to have to be much more uh, mindful of what they're charging because, and I know I now sound like a conservative in saying this because the you know, spigot of unlimited cheap credit from the federal government has essentially allowed colleges to not do that for a long time. And this is particularly true on the graduate side of things. So reason number, I'm going to say reason number six, maybe better than the out-of-state thing, is that I think that this would have the ancillary effect of really putting the brakes on the, frankly, kind of out of control growth in shady master's degrees programs that exist, that are being completely financed through the Grad Plus loan program because there are no loan limits in graduate school. And Um, those are the students that can get private loans. You're exactly right. And if they can't, the program really shouldn't be in operation. Totally agree. Yeah, honestly, if you can't get a private loan for graduate school, you perhaps should not go. Right. Um, though I don't un- I don't know enough about what the underwriting standards are at that point. Probably, I would assume if you have a bachelor's degree from a decent institution, you are probably there are probably exceptions. A safer you know, risk, if you but... I'm sure you could find exceptions where you have like 
I don't know, master's degrees in social work or something mm-hmm. like that, where what we actually need to do there is mm-hmm. publicly subsidize the programs and keep the prices down. We'll just, and, make, and, a de- just make a decision as a country about what you want to subsidize. Right, exactly. Let's, let's talk no, exactly, about that. Yeah. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, How confident are we in EFC as a proxy for not needing to borrow? So th- we have a page in the paper talking about that, um, where we acknowledge that we, we don't think that EFC yeah. like, is perfect as it is. And we actually feel like... Uh, so it says in the paper that we need to set up a system where um, there is an appeals process, essentially, where someone can kind of... Oh, no, I, I did read this, yeah. and then I went off Googling yeah. on like how accurate EFC is. And, no, yeah. Good. Thanks. So, no, I did yeah. read it. Um, I think from having been to NASFA conferences and some other mm-hmm. financial aid things when I was covering Tell our this audience full-time. what NASFA is. NASFA, oh God, I can never get this acronym right. Na- NASFA is the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators, not advisors, as I wrote okay. in many stories. Okay. Um, <laughs> there is a sense, I believe, and also sort of among students when you look at um, qualitative sort of looks at financial aid, that the EFC is not actually an accurate estimate of what you can afford without taking on debt. I Mm -hmm. was not able to find actual empirical research on whether or not this is true. But I'm wondering if you have any sense of of how, you know, how big an appeals process would need to be. I I don't want to say that I do. We also talk about cost of attendance Mm -hmm. in the paper and that um, because EFC is a function of cost of attendance, that we would have to do a better job of regulating how cost of attendance is defined because otherwise colleges could under uh, essentially uh, deliberately underestimate the cost of attendance in order to. Um, change the amount of money that they're charging. Uh, and so there would need to be an audit process. And mm-hmm. some, we see, you know, we've, we've heard about like wide variations among similar regions and cost of attendance. And so and, and that's the wild west right now. Mm-hmm. And we would need to get after that. Um, so we're starting with EFC. Um, but I think we acknowledge that, that as the stakes for EFC become higher, as this certainly would, would, would do, we would probably need to take a, a strong look at that. Well, and, right. And it implies, you know, Assuming assuming that that students are going to pay the EFC implies like this relationship between their parents and and them yeah. that that is that that I think it's a shame that we can't assume that anymore but it's true yeah. that's um, yeah that's that's also one that right, I, that's sort I, of I didn't what I think of that but that's kind of probably where some of this is coming from is there yeah. are students whose parents can afford it but in in the end or you know I don't know I just I am very skeptical but this is based entirely on anecdotal evidence encountered right. on the internet that the EFC is really a good barometer of like I can afford this without needing to take on a lot of debt. I mean, it's, and if you you're going a, to all private debt, then all, that's you know the stakes just go up right. a lot on that. You're also, I mean, you're, the other thing that's like implicit in this, which is not, it's sort of related, is this. This is a massive increase in subsidy, subsidy, not lending for living expenses. Uh, yeah, particularly in community colleges, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things we talk about is how the current system. There's a certain perversity to the current system because if you're a college and you charge less than the maximum Pell Grant, as a lot of community colleges do, um, by still, law. Right, yeah. I mean, that's that's they the choice they've made. Latitude. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, students can use the money for living expenses, but the college doesn't get any of that money. So there's actually a, a in some in some ways a, a an incentive to at least charge the Pell Grant from an institutional standpoint, because otherwise it's just you at least get the whole subsidy that way. That doesn't really make any sense, and under this system, you wouldn't have that kind of that kind of bright line. But how, but so the response to economists who say, well, but students would pay those living costs anyway. Right. So, so why? So, and, and right. it's, and it's sort of interesting to condition right. cash for li- essentially cash for living expenses on being well, enrolled I mean, in college. You know, as our good friend, Sarah Goldick Rob from the University of Wisconsin Madison has done in her research, um, you know, it's very complicated the financial relationship between tuition and living expenses and all the rest of it. And we can't, we can't just look at low income students and say their need is tuition. 
Um, so, sure. so yeah, but, to the extent that, that nobody's, nobody's yeah. arguing that, but what's yeah. the right way to finance that? Th- this was certainly test case for a universal yeah. basic income. I really, uh, sure, Dylan, right, Dylan yeah. Matthews did not pay me to say that, but that is, that is what I'm thinking of <laughs> as this conversation. Yeah, no, on. no. I mean, but you're, I mean, so, but you're absolutely correct. This would be a, a big increase in the subsidy in living expenses, which is or, not, which is, which is, which is quite controversial. Right? right. And not just, and not just like, not just on like cranky people who don't want to spend money, but I'm on, on like sort of principle like well should we you know should we pay somebody conditional enrolling in college a big a big a chunk of money for living expenses that you know if somebody who looks identical to them who's low income would mm-hmm. give them anything or, or we give them some you know that's like it's an interesting and, and the question right. about like what does that do to the incentive to enroll mm-hmm. right is really interesting and like yeah. is that going to allow your campuses to meet their performance goals Right. If like, if suddenly this is the way you get, well, it's why you need performance goals. Right. So, well, it is, but it doesn't make them any easier to reach. <laughs> yeah. So you have to start making. I mean, so you have to think about that then. Yeah. I mean, it's it's why the system doesn't work without some kind of stronger accountability backstop at all. Which which I think is the next topic. Which I just, my, so I'm willing. I'm 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 willing to un to to uh, agree that the current system we've we're in total agreement. The current system does not do an adequate job. But my question is, why would it, why would this system do a better job, right? We we can we could take away access to federal aid tomorrow from colleges that we know are not performing well. We could set your exact rubric, mm-hmm. right, and just say you don't get access to Pell grants or loans anymore. So why would why would, and we don't do it now, right? And mm-hmm. we don't have the we sure. don't have the political will or whatever you want to call it, the technical expert. You know, I think it's mostly political will. So why would we be more likely to cut colleges off from funding and states off from funding that don't do what we ask them to do under this system? Well, part of the problem is that the current system funds students and not institutions. And so when we, every time we have this conversation about cutting off colleges from money, what we're really saying is we're cutting off students, their, their students from money. And that, like both substantively and rhetorically, is a very large barrier to taking decisive action. When but even the effect when, would be the same. The effect it, would be exactly the same. You cut off a college, there's kids enrolled there, they have to right. go somewhere else. Yeah, it doesn't, but it doesn't, the way that we talk about it isn't the same. Um, and also, I'm actually, you know, like quite in favor of more stringent federal accountability for low performing institutions. We both are, but, so, but, but, but like, but we've been arguing about it for years and lots of people have been arguing about it for years and it doesn't happen. So has I guess it happened yet. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, so yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, I think Be optimistic. Everyone's talking about your skin in the game idea. It's going to happen. No, no, I know. But which, by the, which, by the way, yeah, which is a different way, which is a different way of going about yeah. this, right? Because right. it's not you're in or you're out. But anyway, so w- just quickly, w- w- there seems to be this like, there seems to be this assumption that because you're not no longer giving money to students and you're giving it directly to something, some mm-hmm. organization, yeah. that that somehow changes the accountability conversation completely. And I don't see it. I don't see it if I look at other policy areas. I don't see any states or, or K-12 schools that have lost Title I funding over not doing what we've asked them to do. Um, I just don't, I have very little faith that this will be like as wonderfully self-executing as you all have written it in the paper. I don't think the phrase wonderfully self-executing is in the paper. No. Um, I mean, <laughs> Title I is not set up that way. So Title I is not, is not designed to uh, take funding away from low-performing schools. It's designed to give more funding. To low-performing K through 12 schools, so if you don't comply with the provisions under, say, NCLB, right, you lo- you're supposed to lose access but to those your are, Title One. Those funding. are not performance standards; those are are compliance standards. No, they were performance standards. They were AYP, and and they were 
No. Uh, implementing, they were implementing the cascading. You never, you could, they were implementing like, the cascading reforms. You could have 100% of your students fail the test every year and never never lose Title I money under under. Okay, fine. Under yeah. SNL. That's too. fair. That's fair. Yeah. That's didn't, fair. Didn't make holding K-12 schools accountable any more politically popular at the state level. Right. And didn't, and didn't to my to my knowledge, didn't didn't do, I mean, there's studies that, that like the whole K, the whole NCLB apparatus mm. maybe raised, maybe had some effect on student achievement. So implicit in our plan is is the conviction that um, private nonprofit colleges and for profit colleges are are under accountable right now to both state and the federal government that they are getting essentially a free ride or something close to it a an almost free ride out of the uh, uh, voucher and loan system that we have right now um, that that is a problem and that this plan would empower governors to by giving them a lot more leverage over the funds that flow through to those institutions to include them more proactively in the way that states hold their institutions accountable. We think that's appropriate. Probably those institutions aren't too eager from that to do that. But, you know, no one with a free ride wants the free ride to end. But, um, yeah, but they're private institutions, right? Well, they're, they are private, nonprofit, state-chartered institutions. So They're not always state-chartered. They're uh, state-licensed. Right, there's this charter like I, in there. You, they exist for some reason, you know. I mean, yeah, but they're not chartered, right? Like public institutions are chartered. I think some, a lot of those. Some private states institutions charter, are, some states authorize. It yeah. depends by the, it depends on the right. state. Yeah. So that, that's, but that's not that's not that's not state control. Nothing in right? this plan prevents anyone from opening a college and charging what the free market will bear for yeah. for higher education. This is all about who gets public subsidies. Yeah. Yeah. Un- understood. Um. And and so. A, rela- a related a related point to the private conversation because I just I don't think I'm I'm trying to think of a situation where a governor would say you know what I have to sink a lot more money into you to get your tuition down to EFC mm-hmm. and and I've got the the unions from the public institutions sort of barking at me why would I ever invest in a private why would I ever invest any of this new money in a private I think it would be very very hard to take a so most private colleges have been around for a while. Uh, we don't church, private nonprofit colleges have been around for a while. Most of them are very, very important to the communities that they reside in. I think it would be very, very hard for a governor to politically um, cut out a longstanding private institution that's a pillar of its community from the system. I think I think that would be very hard to do. And so, but 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 because you've done away with a lot of the private good portion of it, right? By, what do you by mean? you've done a lot, you've done away with a lot of the private financing of those privates by getting rid of the federal loans, right? And by driving their tuition down to EFC. So what you essentially have developed is you've developed a situation where you developed almost like it's not a voucher program in that the stuff's portable, but it's a voucher program in that like it's it's almost like a Title I portability if I could take my Title I to a mm-hmm. private Catholic school. So are you comfortable with that? Um I don't know. No, I again I'm confused. What do you mean? We have the voucher system now. So so yeah, but but so what you're describing though, where where public money would flow to a, a private institution to right. bring the cost of tuition down right. to something manageable As for it does a now, family through the voucher system, right? But in K twelve, a similar plan would be aid to to a Catholic school. Right, uh, and do you think sure, that yeah. do you think that that money is do you think that 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 money is as well spent by a by a leader as sinking that money into? Are the you saying public that, that endorsing this plan means I have to endorse public financing for Catholic K through twelve schools? No, I'm saying it's I'm saying it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting case in which um, if you if you agree with it here but you disagree with it there, I just I'd be curious as to why. 
I haven't really thought about whether I agree with it there. But it's but it's about it's about allocation of public subsidies, yeah. right? Right. So I mean, we, there are just big differences in the way that we we but, subsidize. But what you're saying is they're twelve and higher. What you're saying is that they're important in, in politi- ways. But what you're saying is that the private colleges are right. politically important and 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 powerful, right? Uh, yes. But yet you'd have a situation where a governor would be actively spending more dollars per student, right? And the feds would be spending more dollars per student to bring it down to EFC of public money. Right. This also makes me wonder what happens to religious colleges under this system, because um, I, I'm curious. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine they would participate because it feels so much more directly federally funded than taking a Pell Grant does. I'm pretty um, sure that like but I'm, Liberty I'm, University, which makes gets hundreds of millions of dollars from the Title IV system, would want to stay in that system somehow. I right. Know. Well, I th- yeah, I think they. That, that, but I think that's why. So the political power of those guys is not going to be used to make sure they get money under the new system. It's going to be used to convince the governor never to sign on to this. But then they wouldn't get any money from it. Why would they? But want you just told money? me they were powerful enough to get the money, right? Wait. So, oh, so you're saying that they would? Yeah. Maybe, states would opt. That out. would be the two. That would be the two. Well, I think it would be very hard for states to opt out. Right. But, but at the same time, it'd be very hard for them to justify giving giving more dollars per student to Liberty University students to bring the EFC down. More than they're, we're spending now? Because this is, I mean, we've, I mean, we've bounded this in terms of how much money it but costs. But the states aren't spending that what, now. States aren't spending it right. now. So they'd have to spend it. I mean, some states do publicly subsidize private colleges. Yeah, but they'd have Certainly to spend it. I'm just, I mean, they, I'm have, just, they actually have, some states have, like, I have state no, voucher programs that are only for private colleges. I have no, I have no problem with, if the system were to go this direction, right. I, this is the part of the plan I like, right? Okay. Which is, but, but, but it's, it's curious to me that you guys like it. Right, because because it's it's it really is like you're giving you're you're providing a bigger chunk of the money because you've already got the baseline of state subsidy right, right to bring the guys. We have six minutes left, <gasps> um, and I we really did... well we have five minutes left, and I really did want to get into okay more I'll, I'm Bush. This question. So I okay. I'm gonna answer this question. Uh, okay, broadly, fast. Uh, there is a big difference between this plan and the plan like that that have been that. There's a big difference between our plan and some of the other plans out there for free college, which really just mean free public college. We decided very explicitly that we did not think that we could just essentially define the private nonprofit and for-profit sectors out of the equation of public subsidies. We felt like it was a bad idea. Um, We felt like a lot of those institutions actually serve a valuable public purpose. We didn't think that sort of that tax status should be completely determinative. Um, And so it is a big tent from that perspective. That I I like. That I really like. I have a a hot take. To Uh-oh. transition into the end of this program, which is, I was rereading the Jeb Bush plan today. I actually think we could do both at the same time. Ooh. I think the Jeb well, Bush the plan. That is the hottest takes. All right. I think the Jeb Bush plan and the New America plan actually could go together. It's called the Cadillac. Plan. <laughs> no, because because the so so because the it's too, the, it would be too the Jeb Bush plan keeps the Pell Grant in place, right? Yeah. So this it's it's really all about just doing a better job of dealing with the debt part of things. And essentially what the Jeb Bush plan does is define away the entire system of defaults and put everyone into a better income-based repayment system that we have now. And it gives you an account that you spend over time. Okay, but that's the same as lending someone money and putting them into IBR, right? Uh, Yeah, a little different, right? Because you'd have some – you'd have have nominally more control and therefore – you know, in our in our in our estimation, more interest in saying, "Oh, I've got this balance that I sort of have to work with. This is what I have to spend." This feels semantic to me, but I realize the word accounts is ideologically important, so I will not go in on it. Well, actually, good. There's actually, there's actually evidence from health savings accounts that people spend that people actually spend more uh, responsibly and leading leading in some cases to under provision, which is bad. We don't want people to not spend right. money mm-hmm. on 
Um, but so there's evidence there that like having a that having a thing that you can spend with a debit card, right, with a balance, right. leads you to be more conscious of what you're spending. I mean, similar to you, when I read the Jeb Bush plan, I wasn't like, oh hell no, this is terrible. <laughs> I, like, oh, yeah, I actually think this is pretty this is pretty smart and pretty interesting and and um, probably a lot better than the system we have now, where we uh, you know are kind of mired in using the de- like the default paradigm, not the paradigm that we default into but the paradigm of defaults mm-hmm. loans there's something that you default on yes. and therefore you throw into collections mm-hmm. and whatever u.s marshals that stuff i read in the internet a few days was ago was not true by the way is that not true oh. it's not true okay no. all right um, all right yeah um, no I, I looked into this briefly but the very long story short is yes if you like do not appear in court and they have a bench warrant for you and it is a serious enough charge because i think i've had a bench warrant on a parking ticket before and no one arrested me but okay. um they will eventually come and get you and make you go to court and that is what it appears to have happened okay Gotcha. I okay. imagine like Raylan Givens walking in. Like, <laughs> <his> hat. <laughs> You're in big trouble. Yeah, it kind of pushes his hat back yeah. a little bit. You know, um, um, you want to do? I want to make sorry. sure that yeah. Libby weighs in on yeah. this because I think I think I tend to think that like your guy's plan is is really radical. I think I think that the Hillary plan, frankly, and the Bush plan, the Hillary plan spends way too much money. I think is poorly designed in a lot of ways. But I think the world actually wouldn't look all that different with the Hillary plan in place. It would be like things yeah, would be I mean, better. This, this, is inter- this is the interesting commonal- yeah. commonality I saw, which I'm sort of skeptical of um, just from listening to a lot of health car arguments lately. But like the, you, you, the Bush plan and this plan are very much the furthest, whoa, the furthest in terms of like tear it all down and start over. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm just going to ask that about the Pell Grant. So I'm glad that you. Oh, yeah. Keeps the Pell Grant yeah. in place. Yeah. Just I, puts it in an account. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Keeps the Pell Grant in place, puts it in an account. But it's automatic and it's more... And just um, for our listeners, can you summarize in like a minute what the Bush plan is? Because we haven't resummarized it. Yeah, sure. So uh, big the big piece is it gets rid of uh, federal loans and tax credits um, mm-hmm. and replaces them with a $50,000 line of credit. Any high school graduate can access that. There's no FAFSA. You don't have to apply uh, for it. Um, and then you pay back a percentage of your income that is uh, proportional to the amount you draw down of the 50K. So if you right. draw down 10%, you pay back 1% of your income for 25 years. Um, uh, there, And then the Pell Grant would function uh, as an account-based model where money goes into your account based on your family income on your parents' tax returns uh, through from like eighth grade through senior year mm-hmm. of high school. So it's more like a better, it's a more global indicator of where your family's income is at when you're in K-12, right? Um, which, which to, uh, to me made more sense as like a social mobility tool than something that takes a snapshot of your income mm-hmm. in one year and says, oh, good, you get a Pell Grant this year. Um, so anyway, that's the basics of it. Yeah. And then a lot of other stuff. But. So I don't think the political feasibility of policy proposals is like the most interesting thing about them. Mm-hmm. But I do think... <laughs> Definitely not. From a political... From the point of view of what is politically feasible, I interestingly think the Bush plan might be more popular, which is interesting to me. But I think it's because oh, I, agree. I agree with that actually. I think it's because of the way like I have studied financial aid on and off for like six to seven years now, and the concept of EFC is difficult, and like the the idea of explaining this mm. and like how it would change and how it would make things better while taking away Pell grants and student loans, um, and a lot of what people sort of see as is the system to rely on now, to me is a tough sell, and I'm interested in how that sort of gets summed up for people who don't hear EFC and immediately be like, oh yeah, that's like an interesting way to structure this. And people who like, and so the, and people who like the, the voucher model because they feel, they feel as though at least, and in many cases this is true, it gives them a very wide range of choices. Mm -hmm. 
your your plan your plan almost by definition would give them less, right? And and they'd be better if in theory under your plan, right? Well, so I mean, so no, that, why would it, I mean you're still you're still dealing with a universe of eligible institutions defined by states and whomever. So that's true in both plans. Be- because the, because you wouldn't have enough. I mean, my sense is that you wouldn't have enough money to get all of the existing institutions that ever that people apply that people attend now with the combination of grants and loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't be able to get them down to a place where they're charging EFC. But you would have, per our aborted Twitter conversation earlier today, you would actually have incentives to create new institutions, which is my personal hobby horse. Um, like one way that you could make the numbers work Very skeptical is, to, is to create a new institution that has a lower cost structure and is good at providing education. So it meets the accountability provisions um, and the costs are low so you can build up your numbers and get more money. Yeah. So why, but why would, why would you, but like, so, so then what you're suggesting, what you're arguing then is that states are the ones that are the best drivers of higher ed innovation. This plan, I mean, acknowledges the central role that states play. So, I mean, you have to, but they don't play a central role in innovation right now, right? They, they in fact play a role that's sort of, that's sort of in, in some cases, depending on who you ask, uh, I think this pushes away to, from that. This would right? give states an ability to to drive innovation in a way they don't have right now, or an incentive to do that right now. But what happened to Dar- well, like look at Daryl Steinberg's plan in California, right? The MOOC plan, which for be- mm. for better or for worse, if you're locked out of a course, you can take a MOOC credit right. that will approve, like dead on arrival, basically, right? Faculty unions, yeah. right? So like, so I don't know how this changes the politics, and and it may be the case that saying no, 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 you'll get more money. But like the the faculty unions and the institutions they represent wouldn't get more money. Kevin, right? last word, and then we actually have to wrap up. Sorry. No, I'll give you guys the last word. I've, I've had plenty of words in this. In we this should thing. do. We should do a discussion about your plan and, and innovation more broadly. Yeah, I think I think point. we need I think so we need to come really back fun. to this because yeah. this was already forty five minutes, and we okay. are we I have like. 27 other questions that I my snarky do, tweet so. my snarky tweet that I didn't send because I knew <laughs> okay. we were going to be in the podcast today and so well, only and so our 170 tweet. listeners will hear okay. it was, was I guess by end of college Kevin Carey actually meant reinforcement of existing public institutions with new federal money <laughs> so, so okay now that's, I, too, that's too long for I am going to say no it fit, it fit perfectly it fit? It's oh my God. Really? Wow. Okay. I'm, imp- I'm impressed <laughs> by that I, I I really don't think they're incompatible. Uh, I mean I mean there are, you come at all kinds of problems in all kinds of ways from different assumptions and I'm not sure anybody could. I think you would have to be a, somewhat of a monomaniacal person to to be able to honestly say that you kept your unified frame of reference every time you tried to tackle something tricky. I just don't times. have one. Um, <laughs> so it helps, but. Again, I think that there's no, you know, it's one of those, well, there's no reason why we can't do this. And again, I think there would be strong reasons to do this in the sense that if what you really need to do is get more students into an institution where the tuition is below the EFC, which you don't need to do now. You, I mean, 90% of low-income students are paying more than EFC right now. 90%. So what does it even mean? Expected. Expected by who? Expected by almost no one. Um, if you really need to do that, and the cost structure in your existing institutions just made that prohibitively expensive, maybe you would say, hey, maybe we could open up some new public colleges and universities with a smaller cost structure, which is something that can be done, um, something that existing institutions would fight against. You're absolutely right. But if it's a matter of like millions and millions and millions of dollars, then the calculus changes. How many of the cases in your book are public organizations? Um, so there is a case um, at the end of my book, the University of Minnesota Rochester, okay. which is a, a brand new public institution that I visited a few years ago. Um, lower cost structure, fantastic institution. Um, we don't create very many new institu- public institutions in this country, so there aren't that many cases in that sense. I mean, there aren't that many to choose from. Yeah. 
Okay, we have to wrap this up. Okay. Uh, I don't you, know Libby, what I, I, yeah, I don't know what time. you say at the end, so I'm going to kick it back to you to say. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening. This feels like part 1 of a conversation um, yes. that will continue um, in our next podcast. Uh, as always, thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks to John Williams, Amanda Gaines, and the fantastic production staff here at New America. Um, and thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.